This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Let's face it. People have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Bed, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements, so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com CBS presents America changed forever with CBS news correspondent Jeff Pegues let's start with fentanyl federal law enforcement realizes how serious a problem it is across the country I'm sure many of you know someone who's lost someone. Fentanyl has killed more people than the number of people dying in car accidents, the number of people dying in suicides, the number of people dying in gun-related incidents. I mean, the numbers are so disturbing. Nor O'Donnell this past week spoke with the Deputy Attorney General, Lisa Monaco. Landon Hausman was a popular basketball star, and at 16 years old, he took a fentanyl-laced Percocet pill and died. Sometimes with fentanyl, you don't get a second chance. Beautiful, beautiful son. Sadly, Landon's story is all too common. Last year, more than 100,000 Americans died from an overdose, the majority from fentanyl, a nearly invisible poison. Did Landon have a sense that he could be buying a pill that would be laced with fentanyl? I don't think he even recognized that that was going to be a possibility. In January, the Maryland high school sophomore bought pills from a dealer through social media. No longer are we talking about meeting on the street and making that connection. The dealer is in your kid's pocket along with the phone. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco oversees the Drug Enforcement Administration and says this is the DEA's top priority. There were more deaths from fentanyl last year than from the wars in Vietnam, Afghanistan and Iraq combined. Why isn't this a national security crisis? I think it is, Nora. I think it's a national security issue. I think it's a public safety issue. I think it's a public health issue. This drug is man-made. It's mass-produced. It's done in largely in illicit labs in Mexico where the drug cartels are manufacturing from chemicals, precursor chemicals that come from companies we believe largely from China. They're pressing these pills and they're making them look like legitimate prescription drugs. Things like Percocet or Adderall or Xanax, but they're not. Deaths among teens have tripled. And in the last year, the DEA says it is investigating more than 120 cases that involve social media. They even issued a warning of emoji code language dealers use to target young buyers. These are unsuspecting users thinking they're getting one thing and they're getting something else in the form of fentanyl. Uh, so those really, that's not actually an overdose, Nora. That's a poisoning. Why isn't there a crackdown by the Justice Department on these social media companies? We're talking to the social media companies and frankly, we're asking them that, to do more. They need to do more. They need to be policing their platforms to detect those drug dealers that are on those platforms and pushing it out to kids. So they need to use, quite frankly, the same tools and the technology that allows them 
to exquisitely serve up those ads for all sorts of things um, that we're buying online uh, and identify those drug dealers and getting them off. The dealer who sold the fake Percocets to Landon is facing federal charges. But for Hausman, just one arrest isn't enough. What does justice look like to you? I can't go back and change what happened. But what I can do is try to do everything possible so maybe this doesn't happen to someone else. I also did a report from Colorado on fentanyl trafficking. As the nation battles an opioid epidemic, the leading factor in today's overdoses is fentanyl, the synthetic opioid that's 50 times more powerful than heroin. Overdose deaths topped 100,000 for the first time ever in 2021, and nearly 70 percent of those overdoses involve fentanyl. CBS's Jeff Begays takes a closer look. When someone is in the middle of a fentanyl overdose, there is little time to waste. In Arapahoe County, Colorado, last December, officers used Narcan to seemingly bring this woman back to life after she took an illegal drug laced with fentanyl. This woman survived, and she wanted us to conceal her identity. It almost killed you. It did kill me. I was dead. They said, had they not gotten my heart back, I would have been dead or had permanent brain damage. In 2021, Colorado saw an almost 70% increase in fatal fentanyl overdoses. That's more than 900 deaths. Fentanyl is flooding this state, and it's coming in along the interstates and the highways because the cartels realize that by going through Colorado, they can reach vast parts of the United States. Cole Finnegan is the U.S. attorney in Denver. You've got the I-25 corridor that runs north-south from Mexico. You've got the I-70 corridor that runs east all the way across the country. So there's a lot of different ways once something comes into Colorado where it can move. Daily police stops throughout the state find fentanyl hidden in vehicles. The stockpile of evidence is growing. Problems getting worse here. Yeah, fentanyl keeps coming. It is a poison that is continuously infecting not only Colorado, but every, every community throughout this country. Colonel Matthew Packard is the chief of the Colorado State Patrol. We rode along as he monitored the state's highways. People that are selling fentanyl, they are profit-driven, and they do not care how many body bags are a result of their drive for profit. Adding to the urgency, police say the cartels are now making fentanyl look like candy, making it more enticing to young people. Here's Max. For Kim Osterman, the fight is personal. Her son Max died from a fentanyl poisoning last year. They're deliberately doing this to kill the children. They're marketing it to the children. A supply chain that police are trying to choke off, but showing little sign of shutting down. Scott Hyam is a Pulitzer Prize and Emmy Award winning reporter assigned to the Washington Post's investigative unit. Scott, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. This is an incredible series by the Washington Post. Um, I've covered fentanyl stories before, and I feel like I'm still learning more about uh, the kind of, you know, heartbreak it is leaving in its wake. Uh, And what I like about the series is, uh, in a way, the Washington Post starts from the beginning of, you know, what I call a fentanyl crisis. Uh, And one of the things that the Post is reporting is that the U.S. was slow to react. In what ways? In numerous ways, Jeff. Uh, You know, I've been a reporter for uh, almost 30 years now, and this is probably one of the saddest and uh, outrageous things I've ever seen in my career. And, um, and, you know, I've seen a lot of things over the years. Uh, you know, this, this epidemic, I'm not sure of a lot of people really kind of understand the origin story, but it's important to understand the origin story. And it all began with uh, U.S. drug companies manufacturing, uh, distributing and dispensing hundreds of millions of doses of hydrocodone and oxycodone. And a lot of people got addicted to those drugs. And those companies got into a lot of trouble. Uh, they were sued. They have settled out for between 40 to $50 billion. 
Um, they've been found guilty in numerous uh, trials of allowing these drugs to, uh, to just flow through the streets of America. Um, and then those companies uh, stopped their practices and that left millions and millions of Americans addicted to opioids with nowhere to turn. And so one of the first mistakes that was made at the highest levels of our government was during the Bush administration, they didn't really rein in these companies. They did very little to crack down on, on the opioid industry. And that, that industry was allowed to make literally billions of dollars while hundreds of thousands of people were dying. And then, you know, the next thing that happens, in the, this horrible narrative is the DEA did its job, cracked down on these companies. But again, the people at the highest levels of government didn't didn't see what was going to happen next. And what happened next is that the the Mexican drug cartels saw a, a ready market for their products, and they first started sending heroin into the United States. And then they quickly realized that fentanyl uh, was really starting to catch on. Chinese drug traffickers were sending it over the dark web uh, through uh, the United States Postal Service and and other carriers into the United States and. Uh, fentanyl, I'm not sure if a lot of listeners know, is the exact same drug as heroin, oxycodone, hydrocodone. It's uh, the same chemical composition, but it's a, it's a synthetic uh, opioid, and it's 50 times more powerful than heroin. And so the cartels uh, don't really like middlemen. Uh, they began to cut the Chinese out and began to manufacture fentanyl on their own. And this is another failure where the U.S. government was focused heavily on China, wasn't really um, seeing that the cartels were ramping up a huge kind of pharmaceutical industry of their own and began to uh, to ship huge amounts of fentanyl through the ports of entry into the United States. There were multiple other failures, and we can, we can talk about those as we proceed, Jeff, but that, those, are the, those are the early failures. Let's talk about what a synthetic opioid is. It's something that is manufactured in a lab. Um, so how does it become 50 times more potent than heroin? It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all chemistry, right? And so you manipulate the molecular structure of, of, uh, of the, the poppy plant in a laboratory. And fentanyl has been around for a long time, pharmaceutical fentanyl uh, in the United States. Um, and it was originally developed, uh, you know, for cancer patients and for post-op uh, patients. I actually had uh, fentanyl administered to me at uh, Hopkins. I had surgery on my neck uh, because I was, the pain was excruciating. And so it's been around for a long time, um, uh, but it's in liquid form, pharmaceutical, it's in liquid form mostly or in patches. Uh, for cancer patients, and it was intentionally made stronger for breakthrough pain patients who were uh, suffering from excruciating pain from cancer or post-op. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, the drug trafficking organizations saw uh, that this was, A, a lot cheaper uh, than heroin, uh, easier to make than meth, uh, much more addictive and that the U.S. drug companies have basically set the table for them and they are now uh, taking advantage of this market that was created by the U.S. pharmaceutical industry. And so it's 50 times more potent than heroin. It's 100 times more potent than morphine. And if you're not used to opioids, uh, you will uh, not be able to tolerate fentanyl, which is why we've had so many deaths um, but the cartels being uh, what they are, and if nothing else, they're very smart and very crafty. They're starting to, to figure out the dosage units in their drugs that they're sending across because they don't want their, their customers to die, right? Uh, and so more and more people are getting addicted to this drug. Uh, I, I've been in lots of places where uh, there are a lot of uh, people who are addicted to uh, fentanyl. And they used to be addicted to oxycodone or hydrocodone and then heroin, and, and they prefer fentanyl. It's a, it's a much cleaner drug. It's a better high. They say you don't come down as hard on it. And, uh, and, it's, and it's vastly cheaper uh, than, than buying heroin. So we're, we're in this really terrifying phase right now. It's the worst moment in American history when it comes to, uh, to, to drugs and drug addiction. Wait a second. 
you just said this is the worst moment in American history when it comes to drugs and drug addiction. So based on the statistics statistics that the Washington Post has, this is a problem uh, that is getting worse, not getting better. Yeah, it's uh, it, it is getting worse exponentially by 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 the year, uh, by the month. Uh, every day, two hundred people are dying of fentanyl overdoses. That's the equivalent of a, you know a, of a of a Boeing jet crashing and killing everybody on board. Uh, last year, one hundred and seven thousand people died of drug overdoses, and two thirds of those were uh, for were, were due to fentanyl. Um, you know, one hundred and seven thousand people. That's the most people we've lost ever by far uh, from uh, drug overdoses, and you know that's more people. Than we lost in uh, Vietnam, the Iraq War, and the Afghanistan War combined. Um, so it's just a, a terrifying, terrifying uh, time for um, people who uh, live in a lot of these communities, and, and there 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 aren't too many communities that have not been touched by this. Uh, it's also a terrifying time for parents of of, uh, of uh, middle school and, and high school and college age kids because. You know, the, the days of experimenting with drugs are over. You can experiment uh, with a drug now and die um, because fentanyl is is everywhere. You know, one of the more insidious things, Jeff, is that uh, there's a company called Malincrot. It's one of the oldest pharmaceutical companies in America. And most people, when they think of the opioid epidemic, they think of Purdue Pharma. But Malincrat produced far more uh, oxycodone than Purdue could ever have uh, dreamed. And their most popular pain pill was a 30 milligram oxycodone pill. It has an M stamped on one side and a 30 on the other, and they're blue. And uh, that pill was the most popular pain pill on the black market in America before the drug companies uh, got shut down. Malincrot is now in bankruptcy. I think it's emerged from bankruptcy now. But what's what's insidious is that the the Mexican drug cartels are using that M30, that Malincrot 30 milligram pill, as a marketing tool. They are they have industrial size pill presses south of the border, and they are stamping out these pills, uh, masquerading as oxycodone pills, but they are they're pure fentanyl, um, and so. At first, a lot of people were taking these pills because they thought that they were Malincrot M30 pills, but they weren't. Uh, they, they were fentanyl. Now, almost everybody on the street knows that, that these are fentanyl and people are seeking them out. But it, it just goes to show you uh, how the Mexican drug cartels have learned from the companies north of the border. In fact, the Washington Post is reporting that the epidemic has hit the young with alarming speed and disproportionately killed blacks and Native Americans in recent years. In 2020, overdose death rates increased 44% for Black people and 38% for Native Americans. Disturbing statistics. It's incredibly uh, unsettling. You know, it's the number one cause, Jeff, of deaths of people between the ages of 18 and 49 years old in America right now. And that's just, you know, kind of hard to, to, to get your arms around that. But but that is the number one cause. It's not car accidents or gunshots or falls or suicides. It is, it is fentanyl overdoses. Um, we have a, you know, we had a seven-part series that ran in the Washington Post. It is the last piece about a, a, a mass death event in Colorado where a bunch of friends got together and they decided to do some cocaine. And they didn't realize that the cocaine had been spiked uh, with fentanyl and all five of them died basically where they were sitting in this living room uh, in, in an apartment in Colorado. And, you know, it's not the it's not the Mexican cartels that are, are spiking the cocaine. It's drug gangs north of the border that are trying to make their their drugs more um, uh, addictive and, and more potent. But, you know. The, the other thing that we've we've uh, been exploring in the series is that the Mexican drug cartels are, are now becoming like chemical cartels. They used to rely on, you know, uh, on, on cocaine. So you needed coca leaves or marijuana. You needed to grow pot or or um, 
or heroin. You needed you needed poppies. Uh, and now they've they've gone from an agrarian based uh, drug operation to to a chemical based drug operation, and their two go to chemicals are fentanyl and 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 uh, and meth. Meth has been you know one of their favorites for a long time. It's it's not as uh, it's not as addictive. It is addictive, but not like fentanyl, and and it won't kill you uh, like fentanyl can. And so um, you know fentanyl is become this, you know, just kind of terrifying monster that's rampaging across the country. And we've spent a lot of time with drug agents down the southern border, and they are beleaguered. They're trying to do everything they can to stop this drug from coming into the country. And they are completely overwhelmed and and overmatched. And also, what's the problem? Is it on the U.S. side of the border or is it on the Mexican side of the border? Well, that, that's a great question. It's it's on it's on both sides. Uh, first, on on the on the south side of the border, the cooperation between the Mexican government and the U.S. government is an all time low. Uh, the uh, Mexican president uh, has been in a feud with uh, with the uh, this administration and the administration before um, over you know building the wall, and you know Mexico is going to you know all this political rhetoric did not help. Uh, and um, and you know, accusing Mexicans of being rapists during the, the previous campaign did not help. And uh, and the the president of Mexico ran on a campaign that of hugs, not bullets. And and he promised that he would he would reduce the violence in, in Mexico. And he believed that allowing the DEA to run operations in his country was fueling violence. Um, I don't think that turned out to be accurate, but in any case, there's not a lot of cooperation. Uh, and so the cartels are, are basically operating with impunity south of the border. And the other problem north of the border, along the border, is that fentanyl is not being um, uh, trafficked like through the desert or the mountains or whatever. So we're, it, it, the wall has very little impact on, on fentanyl trafficking because it's coming directly through the ports of entry. Uh, San Ysidro and Ote Mesa, south of San Diego, and Nogales in Arizona, the really big entry points. And, you know, Jeff, there are 100,000 vehicles that cross uh, through those um, those entry points every day. And and fentanyl is so compact, uh, you know, all you need is like a suitcase full of, of, of fentanyl powder or fentanyl pills. And that's, you know, millions of dollars of profit. Uh, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's, you know, hundreds of thousands of hits of, of fentanyl and finding, uh, you know, uh, these things is, is nearly impossible. And so another, another failure, uh, by, by the U S government is, is that they have the technology <clears throat> to scan these vehicles, uh, and to look for anomalies. And this uh, equipment was supposed to be installed years ago, but because of, you know, bureaucratic bungling, uh, a lot of focus being put on building the wall rather than this, uh, te- technological, infrastructure has really kind of put us uh, behind the eight ball. Making problems worse are the so-called rainbow tablets that have been seized on U.S. streets. Tell us about those. Yeah, you know, at first people thought that these rainbow tablets, and it's got a lot of press, uh, that these were somehow, you know, being colored uh, to attract uh, young people. And that's that, that turned out to be a false narrative. That's not why... They are being uh, manufactured with colors. Uh, the drug agents believe that the cartels are doing that to signify to their customers north of the border that that these are fentanyl. These are the real thing. So if and because people are looking for fentanyl now, they're not looking for uh, you know oxycodone. They're not looking for hydrocodone. They they want fentanyl, and so they believe that the cartels are coloring. Uh, these tablets to signify to their users uh, uh, north of the border that these are the pills that you want. And they believe that that the cartels may get to the point, and maybe they are at the point now, that each color will signify uh, a dosage level. And so if you're a beginner and you know you uh, and you want to just try it, maybe there'll be one color. And you know, if you've been using for a while, there's another color. If you're hardcore, there's another color. And so the you know the cartels are are their marketing geniuses. They're they're, they're ruthless. They're relentless. 
um, and uh, and they're making more money than they ever have in, in, in their history. From what I read, you've been with the Post since 2000. You've won all these awards. You're, uh, I think it's fair to say, one of the best investigative reporters in the country. What is it about this issue that has you hooked? Well, first of all, thank you for that compliment, Jeff. That's super kind of you. I, uh, um, that's, that's a really good question. I, I, I think that in the course of my career, I've never seen um, more greed, more arrogance, and, and, and more death as a result, more harm as a result of that greed and arrogance than, uh, than I've seen with, uh, with the U.S. drug companies that were involved in the opioid epidemic. Um, they, they knew exactly what was going on. You know, we've gotten access to all their internal emails and internal audits and memos, and a lot of material has come out, um, uh, and a lot of it as a result of a legal action that the Washington Post took to unseal a lot of these documents, and, uh, and they knew exactly what they were doing. And, uh, you know, and we've talked to a lot of families who lost people in, in that first wave of the opioid epidemic with the pain pill, pain killer wave of the ep- epidemic. And, uh, and, and they, you know, they feel like, yeah, okay, the companies are paying 40 to $50 billion to get out of these lawsuits. And that's money that's going to go into these communities for drug rehab and, and other really important programs. And, and that's essential. But the one thing that they'll say is that, you know, why has not one executive from a Fortune 500 company that was involved in this opioid trade in America and not been charged with a crime? And uh, a lot of families will tell you that. So that's the that's the thing that kind of got me hooked is, you know, we, we do a lot of accountability reporting at The Washington Post and uh, and, and I, myself and my colleagues you know, feel like these companies have not truly been held accountable. And now, uh, you know, an outrage on top of an outrage, the second wave of, of, of the opioid epidemic was heroin that, that didn't last very long because the cartels quickly saw that fentanyl was the future. And, uh, and that's the third wave. And, and, you know, we wouldn't be here if not for the behavior of uh, the U S drug industry. And it's one of the the great outrages, uh, I think, in modern corporate history in America. Appreciate your reporting, Scott Hyam, with the Washington Post's investigative unit. Really appreciate your time, really appreciate your reporting, and look forward to uh, your upcoming stories on fentanyl. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Jeff. This past week, the Fed raised interest rates. The market went up, went down, which really wasn't a surprise. It's, you know, there's a lot of market volatility, so that was not a surprise. But along with the increase in rates came an indication from the Fed that officials expect to keep rates higher through next year with no reductions until 2024. So what does that mean for you and me? Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, joins us now. Jill, here's why I love having you on the program, because you are so good at what you do. You know how to break down these numbers that, for the rest of us, are big numbers, don't really mean much. And so I need you to break down what these numbers and what the Fed said really mean. So I'll start with the good news. And then I'll end with the not so good news because that's how I'm rolling today. The good news is it looks like inflation probably peaked in June. And you will remember those bad old days as we were approaching the summer months and gas prices were over five bucks a gallon. And inflation, as measured by the Consumer Price Index or the CPI, reached a 9.1% increase year over year. And that was the height of where we were in this cycle, 41-year high. And in the ensuing months, the top line, that headline rate, did start to come down. And part of that has to do with energy prices coming down. We now know that, according to AAA, gas prices are now actually, unbelievably, 
below where they were a year ago. But here's the not so good news. When we look at the inflation rate of 7.1%, again, down from that 9.1% increase in June, now it's 7.1% higher than it was a year ago through November, there are parts of the report that really are somewhat concerning. Number one is that the cost of shelter, rents, or how the government measures your uh, house, they try to say, well, if you own your house, what would it cost you to rent it in this market? So we know that shelter is a big component of the index, and that still remains pretty high. And food costs, although they are coming down, they're still more than 10% above where they were a year ago for an assortment of issues, but no one really cares about the why. They just know it's expensive to go to the grocery store. So the good news is inflation looks like it's peaked. The bad news is it's still higher than anyone would like. And I'm wondering about what people are paying for everyday goods. Joe, let's just say uh, the the price pressure eases, the, the 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 cost that people are paying eases. They're really not going to feel that for for some time. I mean, even if things are getting better. We're really not going to feel it for a while. It kind of depends. You know, it was like this weird thing about the way the inflation rate did start to bubble up. And there were some people who were saying, oh my God, things are so much more expensive. Goods were so much more expensive. And you especially heard this when people were trying to buy a new car or buy a used car. And if you weren't in the market for a car or you lived in a city where you weren't um, owning a car and you were not driving and paying high gas prices, things weren't that bad. But I think that the idea here is that there are certain aspects of the inflation rate coming down that are going to be very helpful and people will feel it pretty soon. But if you're going to book a trip for your family to go away for 2023 and you're trying to book it right now, it's still expensive. And if you are just paying for your rent, that maybe you are trying to renegotiate that rent, you may find as you start to renew leases that Maybe the prices come down a little bit, but it's still higher than what you signed on for two years ago, let's say. So I think that it takes a while and it kind of depends on the kind of person you are. You know, it's funny. I was talking to somebody recently who said, I live in a city, so I take public transportation. I own my home. So, and I have a fixed rate mortgage. So the way that this person said, you know, that he felt inflation was really just about food. And yes, food was more expensive, but you know, if you got a, a decent wage increase, not a huge one, you could sort of absorb that and feel like, all right, things are going to be better. I get it. Uh, if you were paying for so many more things and things were more expensive and you didn't have extra savings that had built up during the pandemic, then you're going to feel the pain and it's going to take a while to get out from underneath that pain. What about interest rates? I mean, they're, they're still... Are they historically low or are they historically average now? But they still seem high. Well, I mean, it's hard to to just say an absolute rate. So if we look at the federal funds rate, four and a quarter to four and a half percent is not particularly outrageously high in the post-World War II era. It really isn't. However, if you consider that in February of 2022, the federal funds rate stood at zero. And at the end of 2022, it's at a range of four and a quarter to four and a half percent. What I can tell you is that is probably the most rapid pace of rate increases we have seen in the modern era. And so, yeah, I do think that there is certainly a, uh, there's a case to be made that, yeah, historically these rates are not that high, but the reality is that's not how most people experience it. They experience the the situation we're in based on where we have come from. And this has been an extraordinarily t uh, uh, aggressive and fast-paced rate hike campaign. Given the information you've just given us, is if you're looking for a, a house or a condo, should you wait? Should you, should you sit on the sidelines or act now? 
Housing is so strange right now because of the pandemic. There were so many people who jumped into the housing market, taking advantage of very low interest rates and trying to find a way to work from home or find better space. And that really pulled forward a lot of demand. People who said, yes, I want to buy a house in three to five years. They, they ended up doing it within you know 18 months of that time frame. And so what we find right now in the housing market is while activity has dropped off and, you know, when mortgage 30 year fixed rate mortgages went to 7%, they're in the sixes now, but once they went that high, that fast, that was going to spook a lot of would be first time home buyers. That said, there are also people who can actually say, I can buy a house. Maybe they can buy it in cash. Maybe they don't need a mortgage. And for those people, they're looking for the right house. The problem is there just isn't a ton of inventory. And so prices have not come down that much nationally, certain markets they have. But I think that the expectation is that housing activity is going to slide. We are going to see prices start to come down. And that will make affordability better. And if you are looking for a home and you do need a mortgage, maybe this is the time that you would consider a variable rate or an adjustable rate loan where you could pay a lower rate to stay in it for the next three, five or seven years. And then within that time horizon, you would either refinance or potentially you would move. So all of these things are um, open to people. Again, running the numbers makes a ton of sense. And in every market, it's different. Maybe it is affordable to buy a home versus renting in your market. But until you run the numbers, you won't know. You and I have talked in the past about Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, and how he's doing. I'm going to ask you that question again. How how do you think he's doing managing inflation or the, the potential for a recession? You know, the Federal Reserve under Jerome Powell started too late when in raising interest rates, in retrospect, right? I mean, no one wanted to call balls and strikes in the middle of a pandemic and start to say, do this, do that. But, you know, there are some people and some economists who were vocal, who were right. Um, former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers said, inflation is not temporary. It's going to be a problem. And he was kind of ringing the bell and saying, pay attention, pay attention. There were a lot of other economists who did not think it was going to be as dramatic a move. So I'm going to cut the Jay Powell Federal Reserve a tiny bit of slack and say, I know they did the best they could, but they're late. And they were late. And as a result, inflation did inflict more damage than it probably should have. But, you know, we are human beings and we are informed by usually what has just happened. So behavioral economists call that recency bias. Whatever just happened in the most recent past informs what we do today. And if you look at the way Jerome Powell and the other Fed officials were acting during the pandemic, I think they looked back to the great financial crisis and the great recession. And they said, you know what the big mistake of that era was? was that the Ben Bernanke Fed started raising rates too soon, and that hurt a lot of people at the lower end of the income stream. And it did not allow the the labor market to recover fully enough. And so the Fed made a classic mistake, which is they said, let me look at the last crisis, let me apply the playbook to this crisis. And you know, they thought that the if you had two bad choices, either high inflation or high unemployment, they were going to go with high inflation. And so that's where we're we're ending. Uh, you know, I think he's he's got a tough job. I think it's funny that he consistently says the exact same thing basically all year long, which is we are going to be on top of this inflation thing and we're going to keep rates high. And every time there's a tiny little glimmer of hope, whether he or another Fed official makes a somewhat more dovish comment, dovish meaning like a little bit more friendly towards keeping rates a little bit lower, um, investors go nuts and they buy but they buy stocks. And then two days later, everyone looks back at the transcript and says, that's not what he said. He said he's going to keep rates as high as he needs to keep them in order to quell inflation. And I think that Jerome Powell has been true to his words, that they are going to be data dependent, that they are going to keep rates longer for, they're going to keep rates higher for a longer period of time than most people would expect. And that 
a lot of the financial um, media and a lot of the investment investors out there are getting a little too breathless about whether it's a 75 or a 50 or a quarter point increase. What he is telling us is don't pay so much attention to these moves. Pay attention to the terminal rate. Where do we end this rate hike campaign? And according to the Fed's most recent meeting, it looks like we're above 5% and we're going to probably stay there for a longer time than many people would like to imagine. I still, at least from the Fed, haven't gotten a straight answer about whether we're heading into a recession. You know, I think it's a hard question. Here's what I think you can really like take to the bank. I hate to overuse that, but here's how here's how I think about it. The Fed has gone from 0% interest rates to four and a quarter, four and a half percent. That tells you right there that the economy is slowing. So in the first half of the year, the U.S. economy contracted. In the third quarter, it expanded. And in the fourth quarter, it's going to be relatively flat. It's going to be a squeaker of a positive GDP for the year 2022. In other words, the economy will be slightly bigger than it was in 2021. In 2023, things will continue to slow down. Job creation will taper off and things will slow to the point where we're either going to see outright job losses or we're going to see the unemployment rate drift higher or both. And under those circumstances, one would predict with maybe not certainty, but with probability that the U.S. is probably headed into a recession. Now, the big question is, is it going to be long and awful, like the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009? Is it going to be shorter and uh, less severe or less sha- and, and, and be shallow, a short and shallow recession? That would be kind of a great thing. Is it going to be that we actually just by, by a little teeny tiny amount, we, we miss classically going into the defined recession but things slow down and it doesn't matter what you call it because it was slower anyway. So at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter to most Americans. Either they'll have a job or they won't. And those that's really the metric they're going to judge 2023 on. And if they have a job, are they getting paid enough to be able to afford the prices that they are encountering in the day-to-day economy? And that's it. It doesn't matter. Call it a recession, a slowdown, and call it an apple. It doesn't matter. That's what they care about. You know what, Jill? I have a daughter coming home from college, and I want her to have a job. It's very important to me that she finds a job. I was at a restaurant the other night. I talked to this young lady who was serving our table. She went to William & Mary and the London School of Economics, still looking for that first job in the field that she's interested in getting into. So I don't know. Yeah, I'm worried about my job. <laughs> Always. Always. You're in the wrong sector, dude. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, what about these kids coming out of college? I mean, there there was a time when their job prospects were really good coming out of college. You know, it's an interesting lesson is that things can change pretty rapidly, right? You graduate in 2000 let's call it 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. You graduate in those five years, you got a good job. You got good job prospects. Maybe not killer in 15 and 16. Maybe it gets better and better. And then 2020 comes and you have the pandemic and you have no job and there's no economy because the economy shut down. And then the following year, you have a hot economy. And now you have another year after that and maybe two years later and things will be slow. But The graduates of 2023 are going to have an awful lot more information available to them uh, by the time they, the June, May, June graduation season rolls around. Maybe it's a question of just understanding that, hey, you know what, what my expectation was, how easy it was going to be, maybe it's not going to be so easy. Or maybe I was going to be a software engineer and I really wanted to work at a big technology company. And instead, I'm going to go work for a healthcare company. And it's not as flashy, but it's a job. Or maybe I'm going to be working in the um, in, in a large institution or a large utility, or I'm going to work for a municipality. And I'm going to take that skill and I'm going to m- apply it into the area of the economy that continues to add jobs. 
And that's what's going to be required if there is a slowdown. And if it's if it's a short and shallow recession, if it's a slowdown of, you know, in February, March, April, and May, things are a little bit hanky and maybe you won't get your job till September, that's that's okay. But if things go south, if the war in Ukraine starts to escalate again, if prices re-accelerate, if interest rates go even higher, then you're going to have to really figure out what is the part of the economy where I can actually work and make a living and maybe not have my dream job or even my desired job? Because when you graduate into a recession, you have to kind of take any job. Hmm. All right. You, you sort of reassure me about you know, maybe one day not having to pay an allowance. Maybe she'll have a job. What's her major? Music business. <laughs> the business of music. Okay. She's a, she is a performer as well, but she okay. went to Syracuse and they have this great music business program. And the music business is doing well. I see Spotify advertising for jobs and you know, so I'm I'm nudging yeah. her forward and saying, "Hey, yes, I'm going to cut off your allowance <laughs> on this date." I don't know if that's the right a- approach, people, but I mean, is she going to does she get to live home or not? She gets to live at home, rent free or with rent? Uh, pr- rent free. Okay, so that's a big. That's a pretty. I was just going to say that's a big deal. Well, it's not an incentive to move out, that's for sure. Well, put it this way. I mean, there are people that you know, and I'm sure you grew up with, that when, I think we're around the same age, that if you know you were, if you were graduating in 1985, 86, 87 years, it was, oh my God, slam dunk, you got a job. Then 88 and 89, there was a little, there was a little recession and a bunch of people got laid off. And, you know, they were people who maybe had parents who could pay, write checks for their rent. I didn't have one of those parents. They could write checks for my rent, but they were like, hope, good luck. <laughs> and look how well you've done. Maybe I should do the same thing. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I, I got moved out. I said to my father, I got a job. My first job trading, I made $15,000 a year in 1987 as I was a clerk. And they said, we'll move you to 30000 if you're good enough to be on a seat. And uh, I said, well, how am I going to pay for my rent? All my friends were getting their rent subsidized. They were going into publishing or whatever dopey jobs they were going into. And my father says, maybe you should sell your car. And there was no offer like, I will be happy to help you, Jill. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we all have uh, different stories, right? We do. We do. And thankfully they've worked out. Jill, you are the best. You are like so soothing, so knowledgeable, so awesome. Thanks for your time. Uh, before we go, just a thought. I happened to go to a wedding this past week. And two friends of mine, they tied the knot. Beautiful thing. At this wedding, uh, there were a bunch of you know, Washington types. Um, director of the FBI, Chris Ray, he was there. And other folks tied to the FBI. And we were talking about the country. We were talking about the state of the country. Um, you know, there was a little cocktail party before the event. And we were talking about, and this was not the director of the FBI involved in this, but he was nearby. In the group that I was talking to, we we were discussing the podcast, which I very much appreciated. And one of the guests, her name is Carmen. And Carmen, if you're listening, thank you very much for downloading the podcast. Much appreciated it. Much appreciate that. But I think what she appreciated about what I was talking about is how, you know, I think we're at a point where I hope after this these midterms, people are going to start talking about more of the positive things in this country. And the people that I was talking to at this event, they agreed. And they said, you know, yeah, we just don't focus enough. And they weren't attacking the media, just Americans in general. We don't talk enough about what's great about this country. You know, there's too much focus on what's negative about this country. 
And I think if you look at that swap, that prisoner swap, Brittany Griner for the merchant of death, Victor Boot, someone recently said to me, if that is not the epitome of what Russia right now is standing for versus the U.S., I don't know what is. And this person was right. You know, think about the fact that we swapped for a basketball star, someone who made a mistake, who should not spend, you know, years behind bars because of that mistake in Russia. We got her back at Christmas time. The administration got her back. She's with her family. And yet Putin wanted the merchant of death. And as someone who's written about Russia, I'm not surprised. But just think about that trade. And in the context of people at this time, holiday season, post-midterms in 2022, thinking, you know what? We need to talk about the positive that this country stands for. I agree. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. Don't forget to check your local listings to see when ACF airs in your community. For now, I'm Jeff Pegues, and that is how America Change Forever. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. Don't forget that you can hear us on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday. For now, I'm Jeff Pegues, and that is that will America change forever? Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.